0: Here at Jacobin Radio, we occasionally publish interviews and conversation about sports on a spinoff podcast called The Jacobin Sports Show. In this recent episode, Matthew and Jonah talk with Atan Thomas, the writer and former NBA basketball player. If you want to hear more shows like this, just search Jacobin Sports wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode 41 of the Jacobin Sports Show. Matthew Miranda joined, as always, by an older, wiser Jonah Birch. I am. Jonah, how is your... I see you sporting a sexy new look today. There's an earring, there's a haircut with intent. This is an exciting year, I feel, for Jonah Birch.
0: You know, New Year's
1: resolutions and all that. Uh, uh, New year, new me. Yeah, it's looking good. It's a good look on you. I'm liking this. Thanks. Midwest doesn't know what it's in for. It doesn't. Um, <laughs> so this is our debut episode of 2022, which is a special event, and therefore the people demanded a special guest, and what the people want, the people must have. Today's guest is a former NBA player. He suited up for the Washington Wizards, the Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Atlanta Hawks. But he's much more than a basketball player. He's a poet, a writer, an activist a motivational speaker, and if my information is not outdated, a co-host of a sports talk show on ESPN Radio in Syracuse called Centers of Attention. I'm hoping that's still a thing. He's also the author of multiple books, including Police Brutality and White Supremacy, The Fight Against American Traditions. And I want to say that I have a personal affinity for this guest because we had certain similarities growing up. He was born class of 78, same as me. Spent time between Harlem and places that were not like Harlem. Had he gone to St. John's and played for the Knicks instead of Syracuse and Washington, I would probably be wearing his jersey right now. But still, much respect, (laughs) much love. Welcome to the Jacobin Sports Show, Etan Thomas. How are you doing today, sir?
2: I'm pretty good. Well, we had some great battles with St. John's, like great Great. battles. Mm -hmm. That was a Metal World Peace before he turned to Metal World Peace and Eric Mm -hmm. Barkley and you know, LeVar Postel, that mm-hmm. group. And then when I was younger, um, Zendon Hamilton and Felipe Lopez, like classic Big East battles in the garden, mm-hmm. the Mecca of basketball. I grew up a Knicks fan. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, much love to St. John's. I was just going to
0: say you were, you were, you played in Syracuse in the late nineties, the end of the nineties, that was still the golden age of the, the Big East, right? I mean, great yeah. players. Ray Allen was, it oh, wasn't, yeah. you know, did you, maybe you didn't overlap with him, but.
2: No, he was a little bit before me, but no, nah, yeah, no, nah, the Big East was 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 great back then. I mean, it was, you know, I still don't like the Syracuse left the Big East and we're now in the ACC. Yeah, it yeah, seems yeah. so weird. We're playing Duke Saturday and they act <laughs> like that's like, a, I'm like, Duke? We're supposed to be playing like, you know, Georgetown. St. John's, Georgetown, Villanova. Yeah, yeah, right, no right. You know what I mean? No, uh-huh. Those are the games. Uh-huh. Don't get me started because I'm going go on a long, <laughs> long rant.
1: I, I hate that we left the Big East. That's fair. We'll save that for another episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> I still, I just would say, I still have in my closet, it's the only jersey I own. I still have my St. John's number 13 Felipe Lopez jersey from way back. It looks nasty. My fiance is like, Would you please throw that out? I'm like, You will, you will be gone before this jersey is gone. Oh, no, you go. can't say that. I say it under my breath as I am walking away. So. Oh, I hear you. Got you. Got you. Smart man. Smart Sorry, man. <laughs> yeah. So we want to talk to you about the book. Um... I was curious about the the voices specifically. You have a real mm-hmm. wide range of different speakers in the book. You've got Chuck D, you've mm-hmm. got Jake Tapper, you've got Fred Hampton Jr., you've got Bishop Talbert mm-hmm. Swan, you've got Kyle Corver, you've got Brianna Taylor. How did you decide from the start on okay, these are the people that I want to talk to? Like did you have a did you have a general sense of what you were trying to do in terms of different perspectives? Did it unfold kind of organically on its own? How did you end up with this guest list?
2: It just kind of really unfolded, you know, each, I broke each chapter down to a topic and, you know, hearing people that are connected to that topic or spoke about that topic or, you know, have some type of connection to that topic. uh, That's really where I went to. So for instance, um, I have a topic talking about uh, January 6th insurrection and everything that happened. And so, you know, Janelle Hill, I heard her speak about that topic quite a bit. And so I reached out to her and she was, you know, happy to, to do an interview. Like she couldn't wait. And then I heard Jake Tapper and everybody was like, well, how would you put Jake Tapper in your book? I got that question a lot. So this is how I this is how I got Jake Tapper. So I'm listening to him during the actual insurrection last year and I'm hearing him say, you know, he's he's calling out different members of the media for not calling it what it was for using different type of language. You know, and, and then he was calling the out the media for inviting guests onto their shows and allowing them to pontificate on a lie this this is what he said on a lie that the election wasn't stolen and it kind of drum up all of these things that led up to january 6th and i haven't really heard a lot of media do that like you hear you know the right go against the left and the left go against the right you hear that but he said all media, mm-hmm. even people on CNN that fall into that category, you all are responsible or have some part in what happened. So and I never really heard anybody do that. So I reached out to him. And again, he was like, oh, no, I would love to be a part of your book. So that's how a lot of those, you know, different interviews really just came about by hearing somebody speak on a topic. And I already knew the topics that I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. and then reaching out to them. And then they just they just were happy to, to speak more about it.
0: Um. So you start with the Rodney King verdict and, and mm-hmm. the impact that that had on you. I mean, obviously a seminal moment in the history of this country and certainly mm-hmm. around issues of, of police brutality. Can you just talk about, yeah, I mean, I guess what, what that meant to you and what it meant in terms of how you thought about issues of police brutality, racism, and um, yeah, when you were, when you were young.
2: I was in middle school at the time um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, it was such a different time. You know, I'm I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm old as far as technology.
1: Right. So
2: we didn't have cell phones. The only f- cell phones that we saw were on TV. Like Zach Morris was the only person that had a cell phone that we knew of. You know what I mean? <laughs> on, on TV. So we didn't have, so we couldn't just look up things like the way young people can look up now. So me seeing the video of, of Rodney King being beaten by the police officers or of the LAPD, that was really my first time really seeing that, you know, like a, a real depiction, not have a depiction, but a real event happened that like that, you know, you read about it, you, you know, we've heard about it, everything like that. But seeing it that way, I was like, oh my gosh, like that's awful. And then later on to see the not guilty verdicts, then I was just like in shock. Like, how is this possible? Like we all saw what happened. And so I described, you know, my middle school was like about to erupt. It was all this stuff going on. And I wanted to go in more depth in the chapter. So I reached out to Rodney King's daughter. I looked her up and reached out to her and she was happy to talk to me. And, you know, I wanted to talk about the impact that it had on her. And she was like a young girl when it happened and how that impacted her father moving forward and then how it impacted their life. And then everything else, you know, so I I wanted to get deep into it. And then I I reached out to um, Craig Hodges, Mm -hmm. um, who was actually playing in the NBA finals against the Lakers at that time when that happened. And he talks about how he was trying to get Magic and Michael to do something, um, boycott, make a statement, something like that. And they were like, no, that's too much. Like, so he's talking about what he felt at the moment. You know, so it's really just bringing people different voices back
1: to the moment of the chapter that I'm talking about. I want to ask you a question for a second about that. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot to talk about, but when I read that part about specifically, um, and I read before about what Hodges was trying to accomplish, I know that there seems to be on the one hand more, that it's certainly more, and maybe social media has something to do with this, or maybe players being liberated from being so dependent on their player salaries and having more income streams from other places gives them more opportunities to be vocal, but there seems to be a general consensus that NBA players, especially today, are more overtly political than they were maybe like 30 years ago. Do you feel that that's true or do you feel like that's perception, but maybe not reality?
2: No, it's 100% true. My previous book from this was called We Matter, Athletes and Activism. And I interviewed a lot of different athletes talking about this topic as well. But then I interviewed... NBA commissioner, Adam Silver. Mm -hmm. And, um, I asked him specifically the question that you asked, like, why is it different? And he talked about how he wanted to create an atmosphere, um, where athletes feel comfortable. It's like a safe zone. Like, it's not like you're going to be punished if you say something or speak out on something. And I Mm -hmm. asked him point blank. I said, well, would you punish someone who speaks out about something that you disagree with? Because that's always the caveat. Anybody can applaud somebody they agree with. And he was right. like, well, no, me agreeing with it or disagreeing it has nothing to do with it. This is Adam Silver saying he was like, I respect the athlete voice. And mm-hmm. he was like, I can't. He's like, I'd be a hypocrite if I just let the people who I agree with, you know, say. So then I asked him so then, if you were commissioner, when Mahmoud abdul happened and when Craig Hodges happened, would they have to be punished under your watch? And he didn't want to, like, throw David Stern yeah, under the yeah, bus, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but he did say, um, I didn't see anything, you know, punishable that they did. You know, he talked about Craig Hodges in, in, in detail, and he said, well, he came and he delivered a letter. That's the most respectful way that you possibly can, you know, protest something. I wouldn't have any issues. So So it's a different nba than it was under the previous min- administration and i was there for the previous administration so i mm-hmm. i know i know how there was really a a thought because i heard it so much that you got to be careful because so you won't get done like like mm-hmm. or craig Hodges, you know what i mean i heard that from different and i'm talking about from different players yeah. like mm-hmm. different players will come up to me for other teams Hey, we respect what you say. I heard your speech. I heard your poem. I heard this. I read this about you. But be careful, young fella, because you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't want to get. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with We Matter was really to show different athletes that they don't have to be afraid or nervous because the NBA commissioner is telling you right here in the book that you don't you're not going to be punished. So that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to. Include uh, Adam Silver.
0: I mean, it's so interesting because this book, obviously, you know, it, it it broadens it out. You you interview a whole you you know Raymond Santana from the Central Park Five, obviously a major case mm-hmm. in the '90s. It, but just mm-hmm. on this topic, it, it, you know, we've talked about it a lot. Mahmoud Abdul Rauf was a was a star. I mean, you could go. Mm-hmm. People should go find clips of him on YouTube. Uh, he was he was a he was a gunner. I mean, he was just yeah. uh, you know, and got driven out of the league, you know, Mm -hmm. really uh, brutally, um, you know, for for protesting and protesting during the national anthem, you know, in particular, Mm -hmm. I, I wonder from what you're saying, and we've debated this, we've talked about it, how much you think, look, it's just like, it's a different political climate, the zeitgeist is different, like in the world, and a league like the NBA just for kind of corporate branding purposes, has to be responsive to that, or how much do you think there's really just a like a like a, a shift in the general consciousness in the league administration in you know among the owners? In other words, how much are they are they reacting in a way that's about appearances and trying to kind of you know protect their brand from you know from getting. Whatever, you know, trying not to look bad, basically, and how much that shift. Yeah.
2: So there's a few factors with this. Um, So when you have the top person in the league at the time um, versus the top person now in the league at the time are taking completely different approaches to their activism or speaking out or the way that they conduct themselves. Um, so one, and I played with MJ and this is, you know, he's been, he's, he's been vocal about this. So I'm not somebody who's going to just bash MJ, but back in the day, you know, David Stern was really about marketing and he didn't want to do anything that was, that he thought was going to take away from his bottom line and anything that would negatively affect it. So one thing that David Stern did, and you got to give him credit for is he, he marketed the NBA to an international level that it, 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 they couldn't even imagine that it would be you know, back in the day. I mean, the NBA was the way that it was more the where they would play, you know, the, they didn't play in big arena, the TV con, nothing was the way that it is right now. And a lot of that is due to David Stern. However, um, his advice to the, the stars um, at that time was really to be apolitical, to don't do anything that's going to offend any of the season ticket holders. And, you know, that's that's a little bit of the reason why you see a lot of the stars there at that time not really, sit for, you know, for a time period, it was quiet as a church mouse. Like, it was all the way quiet. You didn't hear players say anything. You know what I mean? And so there's a reason for that. Now, moving forward to right now, you have LeBron who's taking a totally different approach. And he's like, well, I am the brand. So everybody who wants to do marketing with me have to fall into line with what I feel. And it's a totally different approach. And then you have Adam Silver who is um, supportive of that. Then you have an entire league that's completely different. And it does really start with the top person. And that's, I think that's a lot of the reason why you have such a dramatic difference in athletes now and in athletes then. If athletes then um took on the the of the top athlete, if Michael Jordan, David Stern had the Adam Silver and LeBron um mentality, then you would have saw a whole lot of athletes then speaking out. That's I mm. I a hundred percent believe that.
1: Mm-hmm. There was something Chuck D. said in your interview with him that he was talking about it with reference to Public Enemy, but I thought it applied to um, your book, and I thought it was one of the the great strengths of the books. Chuck D. said um, about about Public Enemy, quote, We try to give some logic, balance, and understanding to the privileged, enlighten the masses of minds, open their perspectives. One of the things that I really enjoyed in your book was... um, like I loved, first of all, that if you're talking about, like, let's talk about reality. Let's talk about what's happening right now. Your first move, like Jonah said, was like to go back, because a lot of times people try to talk about something in the context of now, and you miss out on a lot because you're not seeing. This is your tradition. This isn't. We just got here somehow. This is a a curated tradition. And 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 one thing I found really really sad and interesting. And I remember this growing up. I remember growing up, um, especially down by the city, when. At six o'clock news, if there was, let's say, a murder in Spanish Harlem or Brownsville or somewhere like that, the media, it always seemed like the media would have cameras like they would go to the people's houses and try to interview them about their loss. And like you got Mm -hmm. the reaction you would expect. People would be angry. People would Mm -hmm. be crying. People would be screaming. It was a very one dimensional depiction of something. Uh-huh. When the same thing happened to a white family in Westchester or in Garden City or whatever, like you couldn't help noticing as a kid, like asking my parents, like how come they never are, are how come they never talk to the white? And one thing that I thought was really good, you spoke to Isaiah Thomas, uh-huh. and everybody know if you follow basketball at all, you know the sketch story. Like Isaiah Thomas grew up in Chicago, grew uh-huh. up I think on the west side of Chicago, uh-huh. tough time, tough upbringing. And then the story always flips to, but he persevered and he's a great basketball player. End the story. When End you story, talked right. about, and you got a quote from Isaiah, when you asked him about the Rodney King riots, mm-hmm. he said, mm-hmm. we had that every year in Chicago. We had that every in 66, 67, 68, 69. You don't know that from the narrative. Mm-hmm. You don't know that from what we say. You couple that then also talking to Rodney King's daughter. Mm-hmm. And this this blew my mind because it's the most obvious thing Once you realize it, but I never thought about it my entire life. When she talked about King's struggles, basically with PTSD, the rest of his life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't think like that doesn't, that's never the story. The story is Ronnie King got beat. There was a trial. There was a riot. We move on. But you don't think about now when you take that one man and take that one man's experience Mm -hmm. and now multiply that by millions of people Mm -hmm. over 500 years, you know that you have something. When you saw that case, it was about a year ago. The two actresses, there were these two actresses in California. One of them was from Full House, somewhere else. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they were like cheating the system to get their already privileged kids another leg up. And nobody questioned the motivation. Nobody's like, why do they? Like, you understood. Well, okay. Maybe what they did was wrong, right. but they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get a leg up. If you can recognize that people with privilege still feel. Like they have they have to step outside the system to make mm-hmm. it work for them. How do you possibly question people that have been at, you can't even just say excluded, right. brutalized, oppressed, killed, criminalized for even trying to be a part of that system. Mm-hmm. But so I really liked in your book that you didn't just talk about the issue like in an academic sense or a historical mm-hmm. sense or a statistical mm-hmm. sense. You really got into like, look, if you're going to, talk to people and change hearts and minds, which is how this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You need to get into the human reality of, of what this actually is. And I thought your book did a great job of using big, bold face names to bring that reality to people who might not think it otherwise.
2: Right. And the, the you know, the thing is sometimes um, you know, we talk about the privilege part, you know, I have a whole chapter talking about white privilege and I spoke mm-hmm. to only white people uh, for the chapters mm-hmm. because I wanted to have their um you know experiences uh, recognition and calling out of it from their perspective. And mm-hmm. it's something that you don't really hear a lot of. Um, so to have it be people like, you know, Sue Bird, um, yeah. you know, and Kyle Corver, you know, and Rex Chapman, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's those are people who they recognize their privilege, but um, and all of them said it and agreed to it while we was doing the interview that um, the reality is that there's a large segment of the population that will only hear it from another white voice. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of it. You have LeBron, Kaepernick, uh, Robert Sharpton, whoever talk about white privilege, but they don't hear that. But, but with a white voice, they're like, hmm, they makes them think a little bit. And one of the things about it is, you know, the, like how Corver was so introspective. Like he looked personally, like he was like, you mm-hmm. know, I, he was like, I know better. You know, he was like, if you could have seen his face while he was doing the interview. I mean, he was, you know, recounting when he heard about um, his teammate, Tabo Cephalosha, who had his leg broken by the NYPD. He's like, and his first thought was, oh, wow, what did Tabo do? Like, uh, you know, like it was all his Mm -hmm, fault. mm -hmm, And and, And then he saw the video. He was like, oh, my gosh, Tabo didn't do anything. Then he felt bad for automatically thinking that it was Tabo's fault. like but i know him he's like i know him know him i know his family like his kids play with my kids like we know each other so he was like but that's that that conditioning where you automatically think you know what i mean the worst and that the police are always right he said Mm and i saw the video and he was like the police were completely wrong yeah and it Mm -hmm. was and it was that 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 introspective you know almost like conditioning to think certain things immediately and when he spoke to that, it it really touched a lot of nerves with a lot of different white people. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote a column about it in the Players Tribune, and the reactions from it were like, you know what I mean, yeah, like it, yeah. for for having a white voice talk about that. So that's why I really wanted to, in particular, get white voices to speak about specifically about white privilege.
1: And what's also interesting, and and I think reveals to be part of the how large this challenge is, is understanding and i don't know if i i think you make a good point in the in the book when you talk about basically it's it's not it's not directly said but one of the things i think the book mentions is that or or, or illuminates is that one of the privileges of whiteness is you don't have to even be aware of it like you grow up right. completely unaware that it exists and i think about that when so i teach in the summer every summer a college class of kids who are it's in the EOP program so they're all um they're generally all either African immigrants or from Spanish speaking countries. And they're getting ready for the first semester of college. And every year that I teach them, I do an exercise. It's a writing class. And the exercise I do with them, it's a free write. And I always give them this hypothetical of like, if they could do something momentarily unpleasant, that would get every innocent person on death row set free, would they do it? And it's, it's just a test to see like, you know, how far you stretch your mind. But What is fascinating to me, and I I did it at a school that has an enormous international population, so it's a pretty wide Mm -hmm. group of people, and Mm -hmm. the white kids will say this, my black kids will say this, my Dominican kids will say this, my Chinese, everybody says the same thing. They all say, a number of them who, who wouldn't free the people on death row always come down to saying, well, they're on death row, so even if they're innocent of what they were charged with, they must have done something wrong to be there. Mm-hmm. And it breaks my heart when I hear that because yeah. I think some of that is youth. I think right. some of that is that's the voice that you have heard, whether you have recognize that white voice your whole life has already gotten it into your head mm-hmm. that if you're blamed for something like it's probably kind of your fault. Anyway, yeah. you mentioned Jane Elliott um, in your, in your writing who does the, the great experiments with blue eyes and brown eyes mm-hmm. and who has that, that really wonderful moment where, she tells an audience full of white people, like, okay, if you basically raise your hand if you'd like to live the way a black person lives in this country today. And nobody right. raises their hand. And she's right. she's very funny. She's like, Okay, I guess you'd understand me. Right. <laughs> raise your hand. And she tells them, like, you know. It's this very powerful moment where it's like, she's like, see, you know. The fact that none of you did it means mm-hmm. you know what's going on and you're okay with it. And there's yeah. this big struggle, I think, for some white people to 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 recognize that like silence is the voice of complicity like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter that you and i think when people talk about race and white privilege when white people especially talk about it they have a very narrow personal slanted view of what it means that again ignores right. the other person's experience mm-hmm. you had um i can't remember who it was now in your book but somebody was talking about it, when they were talking about the the story in central park of the coop of christina cooper who called the police because there was a black man who asked her to put her dog on a leash. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: whoever spoke about it in your book was saying like, there's a stereotype, I think that like that white people will fall back on, especially white women in the presence of a black man, which is, Mm -hmm. well, I was afraid, Mm -hmm. but it's okay to be afraid because he's a black man. Mm -hmm. And the person in your book talked about like, this is not strictly fear of black bodies. This is contempt for black bodies and that changes the agency from a white person feeling like they have the right to be afraid Mm -hmm. but now you're telling them like no no recognize like you're not afraid you're contemptuous yeah what does that tell you about yourself i i I loved how often your book simply elegantly turned all these tables that were used to viewing one way all you Mm -hmm. do is change the perspective a little and now how do you defend you know how do you defend now this system. I thought that was wonderful. Really, really great.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's looking through, looking through a situation because like you said, you know, you can talk about it and, you know, from an educational standpoint and talk to point out the history and like, almost like a debate, you know, type of thing. And that's okay in certain aspects, but then when you have personal experiences and personal accounts, it resonates a little bit more. So Mm -hmm. like, um, so, you know, when Sue Bird or you referenced earlier, about white privilege and how you know when white people there's a there's a immediate reaction to when you say white privilege it's like oh well I didn't grow up with money mm-hmm. and Sue Bird said eh, and nothing to do with money mm-hmm. you know I mean? mm-hmm. she's like well I well I worked hard for what this yeah. is all Sue Bird saying so right. she's like I worked hard for what she's like well ain't nobody saying you didn't work hard you know ain't nobody saying mm-hmm. that I'm sure mm-hmm. you did work hard she was like but there are different things that didn't happen to you simply because you were black mm-hmm. that's the difference and you know she she was really open about you know different experiences that happened. Um, Brianna Stewart, who the you know mm-hmm. plays for for Seattle you know champion and everything, she told a story about when she was driving back from college and she had two black friends in the in the car, two, two male black friends right And so they were driving back on the New Jersey Turnpike, I think she said it was yeah and and she said the police stopped her. This philopter, she was in the back, no, in the passenger seat. There was a person mm-hmm. driving, and then somebody else in the back, and she was in the passenger seat. So the police stopped her, um, told the, the driver to scoot back, right? Leaned over, looked at her, and said, Are you okay? And mm-hmm. she's like, What do you mean am I okay? <laughs> and then she was like, He was like, Are you okay here? Was everything okay? Yeah. And she said, It just seems like, so she was like, Yeah, I'm I'm okay. And then so after she was like, wait a minute. They asked me that because they thought I was like kidnapped mm-hmm. or what? These two black men were having holding me against my will. Like what? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and she said that was just a, um, a major eye-opening moment for her um, as far as the power and how she frames, framed it, the power of white, I'm trying to think of the exact words she used, but that anything that she would have said would have been taken as the law. Like, that, that's what it was, no matter what she said at that moment. And mm-hmm. they would have reacted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she said, and that's just not, you know, she talked about how she's, she's winning the Olympics and she's standing there and they won the gold and she's putting the, you know, the red, white, and blue flag and she's looking at it. And she was like, oh, this is a great honor. But at the same time, I'm looking at all this stuff happening in America. And I'm like, I'm not proud of that. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, and she's doing this reflective, but to hear, again, to hear a white voice, having those thoughts
1: just resonates yep. with
2: so much of mainstream America on a whole different level. So, yeah.
1: yeah. She talks also in the book, Stuart tells a story about, um, she was talking to, um, Laisha Clarendon and mm-hmm. Clarendon tells her like, when I take off my Jersey, I'm Brianna Taylor. Right. And right there, like just to that one simple little sentence,
2: mm-hmm. that's
1: not something that a lot of people ever stop and think about. Like when I said right. about Isaiah Thomas, you said about Michael Jordan or, etan thomas or lebron james once you and i think that's the fallacy that helps keep the 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 racism alive and well look they made it Mm etan thomas has nothing to complain about look at him he went to college he had a great career like he proved the system can work Mm -hmm. on the other hand you mentioned this in your book i never thought of this Mm -hmm. you were talking to um it might have been either Jamel hill or mark no i think it was mark lamon hill Mm -hmm. pointing out that so we just went through Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. And my daughter, she's nine years old. She, she you know, we try to teach her like the reality, not what she gets just from commercials or from school. Mm-hmm. Hill made a point in your book that Martin Luther... People forget this. Martin Luther King was less popular when he was killed mm-hmm. than Donald Trump is now. Yeah, crazy, right? I, I don't even know where, <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. I don't have a question. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know where to go with that. That's crazy. It's, insanity. And it, it's just
2: It's just interesting when you talk about... You know, how history is told, mm-hmm. you would have thought that everybody loved Dr. King. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, when, yeah. They, when they teach it, like, it's just, and just the omission of so much of who he actually was. And just, it's, I have a dream, not even the whole speech, just certain key parts of the speech, yep. you know? Yep. And then that's the presentation. But that's where, you know, we're talking about the, in the, um, in the chapter, we talked about education. And I'm, I'm trying to think of who said it, but they said that white kids are taught from kindergarten that they are superior. Yeah. And we was talking about, so how do we start? Like people say, okay, well, how do we end racism? It's like, he was say, we have to go all the way back. Oh, that was Tim Wise. Tim Wise said that. Okay. Um, he said, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of when they're taught. It's not like we could just snap our fingers and erase cool. all the, this, was, this literally started when they was in kindergarten and they were told, okay, there were people living here all right. They had a whole civilization, you know, mm-hmm. for, for, for years and years, but it wasn't even worthy of being discovered until we came yep. and Christopher Columbus now discovered this place where there was already people who are living here. Mm-hmm. He was like, that mm-hmm. in itself just tells you that you are superior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the way that he breaks, he was breaking it down. I was just like, yeah, no, that's, that's true. But then in, in contrast, if it's telling white people that they're superior. What's it telling everybody else? What's it telling black kids? What's it telling you know Spanish kids, you know, Native American kids. And that's, that's, that's where it all starts. So they're now seeing now where they're implementing these different things, where they don't want things to be, be taught. And to be honest, in some ways, I think it's much to do about nothing because it already wasn't taught. They just given it a name. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't taught about my history when I was growing up. I was taught that at home. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's the focus of where, you know, in the black community, we have to be able to teach our kids our history and not leave it to the schools because they never taught us the history Mm-mm. ever, Mm-mm. you know, or from our, not our parents, not our grandparents, never. Mm-hmm. So that always had to be done at home. But I think, but now it's just that they're so blatant with it. Like, and they're so, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm like, they just, they just passed the thing in Florida and said yep. that, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the language, but nothing, is basically nothing that hurts white people's feelings. Basically, yeah. That's basically how, yeah. they, how they framed it's it. The, I was like, wait, that, that was in the bills? That's that's how <laughs> they said it? Amazing. Uh-huh.
1: It's amazing. And along yeah. those lines, the reality of certain people's feelings are legally protected over other people's realities and just basic civil rights. I thought of this when I was reading your um, your interview with um, Yamiche yeah, Alcindor, who's wonderful, mm. wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. When I worked in when I was in grad school, I was in Buffalo and I worked at a I worked in a daycare center down like mm-hmm. down. It's called the, the Fruit Basket. It's, it's like straight up hood Buffalo. Mm-hmm. All my kids were all my kids were black kids, and mm-hmm. Buffalo has a it's like a subway underground that becomes a trolley when you're above ground. It's called the Metro. And I would sometimes take my school age kids during the day on the Metro just to ride around and see the city. And you, and all my kids were maybe like between five and like 10 years old. And people on the train would sometimes see my kids, especially the little girls. And they would, you know, give them a little wave for how cute they were. And I always remember thinking, I worried about my kids. Like, what is the point where my kids are going to stop being cute to these people who are waving mm. at them and when are they going to become, you know, a viable right. threat? And Alsdor talked about, she says straight yeah. up it seems like our cuteness factor ends like around 3 or 4. Mm-hmm. And and you think like okay, whatever, but this this came out a lot to me in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Mm. And and Alsdor mentions it. Mm-hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse makes the decision to be driven out of his way mm-hmm. with I don't, I'm not a gun expert, but I think it was like a pretty severe, like Mm -hmm. an automatic weapon or Mm semi-automatic to go to a protest against police violence and act like he's the police Mm -hmm. and commit violence. And when he goes to trial, he's a kid, he's a young kid, like all the, even people who are maybe aghast at what he did, Mm -hmm. he's like a 20, he's a man, he's a Mm -hmm. grown man. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you think of like Emmett Till was what fifteen? Mm-hmm. Trayvon 14. Martin was yeah. I th- Trayvon I think was fourteen. Yeah, they were all young. Tamir Rice was yeah. very very 14. young. Like oh, yeah. yeah, so you yeah. so so yeah, now 12, it's yeah. like now you're literally saying like we are criminalizing black people for being children. Yeah,
2: no question.
1: Now we don't say it overtly; it's not on the books. But right. I, I I thought you know Alcindor's conversations about she says. It's hard to explain to people that's the bias. That's the systemic racism in America that continues to be dangerous to people who look like me. And you not teaching CRT Mm -hmm. is not going to help that at all. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, how did you feel emotionally going through this? I know, Jonah, you have a question. I just want to. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. How how was it for you? Obviously, you've thought about this a lot. You've Mm -hmm. talked about it. You've written about it. But like, you're a parent. You have a heart. You Mm -hmm. have your own background. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you on an emotional level? diving into all of this. That's what,
2: what started me really, you know, even writing on this on a whole different level. You know, I, I I wrote my book, Fatherhood, I think back in 2011, and I'm talking a lot about my son, Malcolm, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm, you know, forecasting when he gets older and, you know, how he's not going to be looked at as a cute little kid anymore and when that's going to change. Then in my previous book, We Matter, I talked about he was, and I remember it clear as day, he was six years old and I was watching news coverage of Trayvon Martin. And so I left the room, the news was still on, you know, and he, I came back and he was sitting there just like staring at the screen. And I was like, oh man, you know, like when you forget, you know, anybody with your kids, <laughs> you're like, oh dang it, I didn't mean that. <laughs> so he's so then he asked all these questions and I have to have the talk with him at six yeah. years old. And so, mm-hmm. you know, even tying it into, police brutality and white supremacy when I was I had to be about 10 10 or 11 years old when I was in Harlem when the Central Park five happened and Mm I'm I'm 10 or 11 years old but I'm tall so I look like I'm a teenager and so the same thing with my son you know, yeah, he's six, seven years old, but he's tall. I mean, my wife is six one. You know, mm-hmm. I'm six ten. We have tall children, mm-hmm. so he's he don't look like a six or seven year old. So then I have to tell have the talk with him, and I go back to where you know I'm I'm you know 10, 11 years old, and my grandparents are having the talk with me with everything mm-hmm. going on with Central Park Five because if people don't know that when that happened, the NYPD was literally going to playgrounds to basketball courts to soccer courts all through Harlem and just rounding up every black and brown teenager that they could find. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm 10 years old, but I'm tall and I am look like I'm a teenager's age. Mm-hmm. And I was at the courts literally because my grandfather would take me there to play against the older guys. You know what I mean? Like I was tall, he didn't want me to play against little cats my age and right. I was just a giant. Right, so I played against older guys, they rough you up, that's that's what you do, right? And I remember all oh, the police just coming there one time. You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking about and I'm remembering, so I'm talking to and interviewing Raymond Santana mm-hmm. and I'm picturing what he's saying as he's saying it because I'm like, I was there. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when that happened, like I'm watching a movie uh, when they see us and I'm having like flashbacks. Yep. You know, and, and yep. I watch it with my kids. So so there's a whole different level of the talk that black parents have to have with our children that white people don't know nothing about. Because it's not their concern. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not something that you, you know, we have we have to there I was just watching um what is it called? The hate you the hate you give. The hate um, you give. Okay. You, so, all right. So I was just watching that with my daughters. And you remember in the beginning, it opens up with the father telling the daughters and his son what to do when you're stopped by the police. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you put your hand on a dash, you you know, you know don't make any sudden move. That's a talk that we have with our children starting at age, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like six mm-hmm. or seven. Mm-hmm. So so and, so I had to talk with Malcolm like, okay, if you're ever out with an you know, like, AU trip or something like that and you go into a store, always get a receipt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be conscious of who's looking at you. Once you go in there, you have to stop playing around because they're watching you differently than they're watching other people. And, you know, just certain things like that that we have to tell our kids that white people just don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's not it's it's not your fault that you don't know about it. It's not your world. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So I, I would go on a lot of different, you know, before COVID and I was speaking at different universities and I'm talking to different you know, white students and they're saying we don't know that you know, but, but, but we can say that it's not right, that that's your reality. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was really encouraging because I heard that a lot and they were honest. They were like, look, we have totally different interactions with the police. <laughs> like, they, I mean, yeah, yeah. they're like, we've been, we've been drunk. We've been, you know, well, you know, college oh, kids. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I like, and, and, and I see the black kids in the, in the audience. So I was like, yeah, y'all can't do mm-hmm. that. Right. They're like, no, we can't do that. We know. <laughs> I was like, so the rules are just different. Yeah. But but a lot of people, a lot of a lot of white students, they were walking, not knowing, existing, not knowing that there were different rules for black students and white students. Mm-hmm. Like they honestly didn't know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. And the yeah. black students would be telling them, "Yeah, we can't do what y'all do."
0: Mm-hmm. It's so like interesting. I, yeah. No, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, go go ahead, go ahead. Go
2: ahead. I right mean, answering.
0: it's interesting hearing hearing you talk like I, you know. I can't growing up in in Harlem around the Central Park 5 who are barely mm-hmm. older than you. They're about your your age. I mean, some mm-hmm. of them were a little bit older, right? Two years. Some, some, yeah. Right. But uh and then, you know, I think I think about that moment Donald Trump famously takes out the ad being like bring bring back the death penalty, you know, in New York State or yeah. and then Giuliani gets elected a couple years after that yep. in New York and really mm-hmm. dominates New York City politics mm-hmm. in the 90s. And you fast forward to today I mean, on the one hand, it's a pretty demoralizing political moment in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. at least for me. I don't mm-hmm. know about you guys. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you know, there clearly has been a, a shift in in consciousness, at least in the, you know, in the popular discourse, you know, I feel like coming out of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd stuff, that there is more awareness and discussion. And I was even thinking, you know, while you're talking about Florida and the like anti-CRT laws, mm-hmm. in some ways, the fact that they have to pass a law about that is a reflection of how much, like a little bit, that's them being on the, the defensive, right? I mean, is that wrong? Is that, you know, that the, because the the, the the kind of discourse has shifted around that, they're like, mm-hmm. they're trying to hold on to some ground that's been lost, you but, know. But yeah. at the
2: same time, it's like a boogeyman because they, they weren't teaching mm-hmm. that anyway. Sure. They weren't like well, like in, in Tulsa public schools in Oklahoma, it's been this big thing. They've ran on the elections on. I was like, and I'm yeah. at because my mother's a teacher. She's talking to her friends, talking to the she's retired now, but talking all to the people who are still teaching, you know, she got to teach her crew, whatever. They're like, we weren't teaching this anyway. You know? Like it's just, it's just uh, you know, like I said, it's a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's the Republicans, you gotta, we gotta admit, they are really good at creating a narrative and that narrative sticking. And they say it over and over and over again till it becomes their reality. Mm-hmm. Like they really think that something is real. Like they really like and it is. It's a you could go through the line of building a wall. Like it don't matter how ridiculous it is. They're <laughs> say we're going to build a wall right. and Mexico's going to pay for it. Yep. They really believed that that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, it, no, no details, no anything. Just mm-hmm. this is what it is. So go even going to like defund the police. They recreated or redefined what it actually meant, kept saying it over and over again to now even you got moderate Democrats saying, Oh, maybe, maybe we should call it something else. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> what difference does it make what we call it? Yep. Like, like you really allowed them to, to recreate yep. the entire definition, even though you know what the definition is, mm-hmm. and then they they win the PR battle. There, mm-hmm. you gotta admit, they are they're good at what they do.
1: But I will say, and this came out, you interviewed um, a police officer, Joe Ested, I think is how you say Mm -hmm. his name? Mm -hmm. And he made a really interesting, he has a book also, and he made a really interesting specific point that I feel like, and this is where it came out, I can't remember who it was, it doesn't matter because anybody could could have said it. But Mm -hmm. the idea, I think part of what, you know, hopefully going forward needs to change for people is to understand that like, it's not like, it's not a split. It's not like, despite the fact that the country may have a lot of people who feel differently in terms, like you just described it in terms of the Democrats ability to let themselves get caught up in a, in a name game instead of pushing a policy is somewhat indicative of the unspoken truth that they know Mm -hmm. a lot of their voters are the same way. They're not, they're not going to march about it. They're not going to storm the Capitol. They Mm -hmm. might even like appear to be friends, but they're not. And the Democrats Mm -hmm. know that. But what Ested said that I thought was really interesting and like, you taught there's a there is a part in the book where it talks about kind of the relationship of capitalism to all of this and one thing that I think is fascinating. Stead says, okay, mm-hmm. like you want to fix this, like you want to actually not just people's hearts and minds, but you want a policy that will change this. Okay, and I and I figure Republicans would be right on this because they're all about the money instead mm-hmm. of the taxpayers paying for mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. policing and, and police brutality. Police yep. officers should get their own insurance, yep. and just like doctors, just like other people. And if there's a problem, there's an issue, the premium goes up. You wanna mm-hmm. see this shit come down? That is the number one fastest I feel you wanna to get to the heart of something in America, attach a dollar sign to it. If the cops mm-hmm. know and you talked about it in um the district, um is it Vallejo? There's a district where the where the other police districts were telling them like we can't be affiliated with you. It started with a V because Oh, Vallejo. 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 Thank you. They have so many, they have so many incidents of brutality and lawsuits that literally other police are like, we can't have anything to do with you. It's literally too expensive to be affiliated with you. Um, Yes. You know, so it's like, there are like people are, this isn't just like, I remember a lot of white people I knew when Mm -hmm. um, the George Floyd marches started and BLM really took off. Like, they'll try to keep it in this like confusing esoteric like it's almost too big of a problem to solve right, right. like we all hate it but there's nothing we can do right there's something you can do <laughs> there's a lot and, of <laughs> and you had a few interviews with a few people uh-huh. when in depth I thought really nicely about look the police that's as big a part of this as anything right so let's talk about the experience that um I can't prove it you had a woman also I think named Pruitt Captain Pruitt, um, right? On Captain Pruitt. Pruitt who talked mm-hmm. about her experience coming up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember if she was the one. Maybe someone had a brother who was a cop mm-hmm. and was like, okay, you want to change it? Come yeah. in. And that, that was Joe said. And, that was okay, said. Thank, thank you. Mm-hmm. But like, people are getting involved and people are getting in. And then these people are telling you, not you, but these people are telling all of America, here's what I found. Yeah. Like it is embedded. Yep. It is like, and and in almost anything else, like if we want to go to war with a country of brown people in the Middle East, all we need is a rumor. Right. Oh, there's yellow cake? Boom. Bomb right.
2: right.
1: Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11? Boom. Right. Bomb them. Right. But when a police captain is telling you, look what mm. I found. Nailed. I took part in your system. Mm. I played the game. Here's what I found. Mm-hmm. Splat. Yes. I'm not saying that to be you know cynical or down. I'm just saying that to show like, this is the... the, the it's not just a political issue, like you're saying, I think, a lot in the text. Mm-hmm. This is psychological delusion among mm-hmm. a lot of people. This is... I don't want to hear that. Right. So literally, I'm going to... I'm going to close my ears. And you missed the reality.
2: You know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I did was get the voices of former um, policemen um, mm-hmm. and women in, in the book to be able to discuss. Because then, you know, of course, the first thing that... You know, some people were going to say it was like, oh, he's anti police. No, right. not anti, it has nothing to do with that. Listen to these <laughs> policemen that I have done workshops with, that I've sat on panels with, and I've done, th- and listen to the conversations that we are having. It has nothing to do with anti police. It's just a better way of policing and then what we're doing. And, you know, they were very open. They were very, you know, honest. They, you know, they came up with, I want it to be solution oriented. Um, You know, so yes, there's one thing we just point out this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Okay, what is something that we can do that can correct it? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why um, Officer Joe has said, um, his book is called Police Brutality Matters. Great book. And Mm -hmm. he's giving actual solutions of what can happen, what can have an effect on, you know, this routine of police brutality. Of, of the police killing someone, they're going on paid administration leave. The city has to pays pays the uh, the um, lawsuit. Um, then they come back later on if they're usually not you know in the criminal court, and then everything goes about their business. He was like, and it's a repeated, like Washington Pete, it keeps going on and on. So he came up with the, with the idea, which I think is a great idea. Um, He said two things. He's like, one, what you said about, you know, with the insurance and having them have their own insurance and another thing he said, okay, or coming out of their pensions Mm -hmm. and it's, it's having them have personal accountability for it, not on the city. And like you said, that should ring, ring to a lot of Republicans ears because they like you know what I mean? Things that yeah, yeah, yeah. are affecting economically. And they're like, okay, so this will be, you know, something that you're not paying for out of your taxpayer's money. But I don't, I haven't heard any, any Democrats using that as a platform, but I would keep right. on, you know, pushing that with Joe instead. And because yeah. it should be something that, you know, that, that's a great idea. I thought.
1: Yeah. There was a cop you mentioned, I think from Vallejo who had shot three or four people Mm. in his time and he was in like a short period of time and he's just mm-hmm. like you're saying it's almost it's almost yeah. profitable for them to yeah. do it yeah um they, they get paid administrative leave that's like yeah. a paid vacation yeah you don't yeah. disincentivize incentivize people by paying right. them to chill um yeah. you know we could i i could we could have you on all day i'm gonna ask you one more question because okay. we're gonna have to wrap it up but this has really been wonderful and um, I hope to have you on again in the future. We could really talk about this all the time. No, no, no. Um, and the book is th- th- great. It's oh, really appreciate great. It. Appreciate yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, again, um, I'll, I'll I'll remind everyone at the end. But the last thing, it's not even a question. I just wanted mm-hmm. to point this out and to compliment you for it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an article in Vanity Fair a week ago by um, a black writer named Jamila Lemieux. Okay. And she was writing in response to um, Dave Chappelle and the controversies over um, his language and his, his whole beef with the trans community mm-hmm. and Jamila the Mewman writes a really great article that kind of talks about like specifically the damage that comes with losing sight of black women in any discussion about black oppression okay. Um, okay. I loved that your book made a point like we're going to take a chapter we're going to take a whole section a chapter and make sure that we talk about like our sisters and mm-hmm. very specifically because it's an easy. You don't want to split it between black men and black women, right? But you know the oppressor will do that, and mm-hmm. the fact that you make sure, I think, just even the general act of like, remember, this is everybody. Like mm-hmm. we want, we need. If we're not, if we're not all talking and hearing, it's not going to get anywhere because someone's right. going to get stuck behind. Um, And I I wanted to ask you kind of in relation to that also, your children are a big part of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, You talk about Malcolm and Imani and baby Mm -hmm. Sierra. I don't know if Mm -hmm. she's still a baby. Um, I still call her baby Sierra. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that sounds like a dad thing. Yeah. Um, Was that at the beginning? It's hard. You have a kid. You can't separate your life Mm -hmm. from your kids. But did you come into the project thinking consciously like, I want women involved. I want my kids like involved. Or did that just kind of unfold as you went through?
2: Well, it, it kind of happened. So like I said, going back to my, my fatherhood book, it was really more about mm-hmm. Malcolm. And Malcolm was, he was little. And he was, you know, I'm talking about imagining him when he's older and being there for him, but he was little then and stuff like that. But then in, in We Matter, you know, Malcolm's a little bit older. And Imani is just really born, you know, so she's a, a little baby. But now with um, police brutality, you know, the kids are older. You know, Imani's fourteen. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, so so Absolutely. I'm having she's not little, so I'm having conversations with her, and you know, one of the I opened the chapter with the the case of Chakisha Clemens, who was mm-hmm. um, beaten by the police in um, Alabama, I believe that's yeah. where she is in Alabama, oh, no. and so I I sat down and I showed uh, my daughter the entire interview, and then so she was just like. You know really bothered by it, and then she started looking up different things. And we had this long, it, after the rest of the afternoon conversation, um, you know, about different things having the talk with her, um, the same talk that I have with Malcolm, but it's, it's a little bit different when you're having it with your daughters because there's different things that are, you know, yes. and, and it's it's it was a discussion that is. <clears throat> Really important because as you're looking at it, and as she was looking up different stuff, you know, kids with technology they can look up anything now, right? Um, which which should translate to their schoolwork that they, they, they look up <laughs> stuff so so easily, but that's but, a different um, pod, that's I, a different I guess. So, <laughs> yeah, but but she was looking up stuff and she's seeing she's like, Well, how come you know there's a difference in the attention that is given to the police of brutality cases that happen against black women than there's against black, black men, and how come you know. This has, she's asking these questions. So we're going in, in deeper and deeper about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, talking after that with, um, you know, Mr. Michelle Sendor of why that is important to highlight that and always keep that in the forefront with people and Black women who are in positions of power to be able to, or in the media, to be able to continue projecting that, you know, continue what happened to Sandra Bland and, you know, uh, Breonna Taylor and everything else It's important. And I I wanted to be able to have an entire chapter with it, specifically focused on that, because so much is going on with Black women and Black girls that doesn't get the attention. I mean, I remember right when I was doing it, there was a, a, a case, and I think it was
1: upstate New York somewhere. But this little oh, the, girl. That was Rochester. I live in Rochester. It was right here.
2: Right, Was it Rochester? Right. It was. This, she was so little. Nine years like, old. My daughter nine. is nine.
1: She's nine years old, this girl.
2: A, yeah. a completely amazing. So, you know, and as you look up stuff, you know, when you when you look up stuff up on the internet, you know, you just get a whole, get into a whole, you know, yeah, thing yeah, yeah. Of saying case after case after case. So she was like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is going on, you know, where you're talking about the. What do they call the cops that are in schools? Um, oh, the cadets. I Can't remember the name. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It, it's not cadets. Uh-oh. It's um, public safety. Edu- yeah, yeah. Something. I can't remember the name. Resource officers. Maybe. Resource officers. So, okay. so the so the resource officers in schools, and the way that they're they're like there's one girl, like little girl, a little black girl. She like sucks her teeth and rolled her eye when the when the guy told her to do something. And he picked her up and slammed her on the ground. Yep. I was like, "Oh my gosh, are you serious?" Yep. Like, but that, but that's the whole thing. He doesn't need to be no. in in the schools. No. They're not trained for that. No. So what we were talking about, even relating to the defunded um, police chapter, if you're not trained to handle certain situations, whether we're talking about mental health I- I situations mm-hmm. or mental wellness checks or children, you know what I mean, or girls, <laughs> or, you know what I mean, some middle school, I, you shouldn't be there. No. And so, you know, there's so, but I, I didn't even realize how much that happens all across the country with resource officers. I did either. Wow. You know what I mean? You're, wow. you're being a rape, you have teenagers, okay, they say something smart back, that's what teenagers do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They roll their eyes, okay, mm-hmm. you tell them to move, they, they don't really want to move, so you end up like, you know, physically doing something because you're a police officer that means you have no business being there
1: exactly. because
2: that's not the way you handle teenagers. Mm-mm. You know, I mean that you can't, that's not it. So Mm-mm. yeah, my man, I'm going off on a tangent, but uh-huh. that's, that's, that's the reason why, you know, when, make, when talking about it and injecting my children into the stories, cause I, you know, I start off each chapter with a personal story, whether I'm talking about me personally when I was younger or personally with my kids or something, cause I make it personal. Yeah. I'm not just, you know, pontificating on a topic and giving you a position that I want to, it's not Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. this is personal to me, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. that's what makes it, you know, a little bit different And then have other people that are talking about why it's personal to them as well, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, mixed in and you can have an educational, like Tim Wise is all, you know, he's a, he's a scholar. So he's going to break stuff down educationally that way, but have that mixed in with somebody telling personal accounts. Of, of what the scholar just broke down. Mm-hmm. It just yeah, that's why it all you know comes together like that.
1: Yeah. Well, again, for those listening, the book is called Police Brutality and White Supremacy: The Fight Against American Traditions. It is by Eton Thomas. You can follow Eton on Twitter at etonthomas Thomas36. Um, as we wrap up here, please remember also you can follow the Jacobin Sports Show on Twitter at Jacobin Sports. Um, and email us at Jackie at gmail.com. Our producer, as always, is the footloose and fancy free Connor Gillies. Very much want to thank you, Tom Thomas, for his time and for his work and for being here to discuss it. You certainly have a lifetime invitation to come back to the show anytime you want. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you so much. And um I appreciate hopefully it. Hopefully, we'll talk to you when you write your next book. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. That was awesome. Thank you so much, man. Take care of yourself. All right. All right, y'all be safe. You too. You too, man. Bye bye. So, that is all for this week's episode. Take care. Bye bye.